Uh, go ahead and open your Bibles, if you would, Mark chapter 7. In our journey through this gospel, we are at a very interesting place. Now, you heard Vanessa read the text already, and, and I'm sure you tracked with every single verse. You understood it. It needs no explanation. It needs no help. You're just there, right? So I'm going to pray for us and let us go. It won't be quite that simple this morning. But I will say this. As I studied this passage, the deeper I went, the, the, the more profound it kind of got to me. And, and I started thinking about this movie I saw a number of years ago. And I bet you a lot of you in the room have watched this movie. It's called The Sixth Sense. All right? Uh, this is the famous movie or the movie with the famous line, I see dead people. Okay, now you're, some of you are like, oh yeah, I know exactly what you're talking. Others of you haven't seen it, that's okay. I think this analogy will still work. I will not give away what happens at the end, okay? But suffice it to say, something is revealed in this movie that totally changes everything about what you've been tracking with so far. It's like you go through an hour and a half of watching this plot develop, and then right toward the very end, there's this big reveal, and it's like, oh my goodness, are you kidding me? Like this whole time, Bruce Willis is, I'm not going to say what actually it is true about Bruce Willis. And then so what happens in that moment is you start replaying the entire movie back in your mind being like, oh, oh, wow. And then it makes, starts making sense. In fact, you kind of want to rewatch the movie in light of this big reveal at the end. Now, this is probably true of any story with a big plot twist at the end. Okay, so whether you've seen that movie or not, you can think of a big plot twist. Now, I think this is what Christianity is. What do I mean by that? I think at its core, Christianity is this big reveal. Like it's this big aha to mankind that what they thought about God, even the Jewish people, what they thought about what gets them close to God, what they thought God might be like, like what they thought it takes to be holy and pure and clean, which is what we're going to talk about in this passage. It was all wrong. And there's something that is true and had been true all along. They just missed it. Now, if you're following this, I also think I could take it one step further and say, I think this is actually what conversion feels like. You're going along your life. Now, I know some of you were, like, like me, you accepted Christ at an early age, so you didn't have a lot of time to sort of, you know, uh, create some assumptions and track along. But you're going along with life, and if you've come to Christ later in life, it's like, I, I thought I assumed this about religion, and I thought I assumed this about holiness and sin and all these things. And then when you really understand the gospel, I mean, you really get the gospel, it's like, oh, I see dead people. <laughs> It just changes. And, and some of you are like, I don't think I've had that experience. I've been in church all my life. I've never had that experience. Could it be? Could it be? If you've not yet had that sixth sense, like, wow, I now understand things I did not understand. Could it be that this is what God would want to give to you this morning even? Because that's what this text is about. That's what I've come to see as I've studied it. Now, anytime there's a big paradigm shift, so whether you're talking about conversion or whether you're talking about like the big reveal at the end of this movie, anytime there's a paradigm shift, two things happen. Number one, there's a deconstruction. Number two, there's a reconstruction. And sometimes they happen in close succession. Sometimes they're separated by some time. What we're going to see today is the deconstruction. Let me explain what I mean. The deconstruction is when you realize that things you thought were true aren't actually true, and it always creates disequilibrium. You're going along your life. You just assume this. You just assume that. Uh, you know, I, 
you know, for mankind, hey, we always thought the earth was flat, and then boom, oh, actually, the earth is round? Are you kidding me? Deconstruction happens. Disequilibrium. Now, over time, what begins to happen is reconstruction. Everything is then reinterpreted in light of the new reality. This is why you wanted to go back and watch the movie after you know what the twist is. So you realize, oh, he is wearing the same clothes. I'm getting too close to actually the thing. But he wore the same clothes the whole movie, right? All right. Now, this text this morning, and I want to say this as strongly as I can say it, is nothing less than the deconstruction of the Jewish religion as it was understood in the first century. Jesus is literally tearing it apart. Now, some of you are like, hold on, isn't, like, it, 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 weren't the Jews God's people? And didn't God give them the law? And, and wasn't Jesus himself a Jew? And you're not saying Judaism is wrong and evil. No, no, no. No, 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 no. Listen to what I said. As it was understood in the first century, as it was practiced and lived out as a religion in the first century, this, is ta- this text is nothing less than the total deconstruction of that. And I think this will make more sense as I walk through the passage. William Barclay, who was a, a Bible scholar many years ago, he said this, although it may not seem so now, this passage, when first spoken, was well nigh the most revolutionary passage in the New Testament. Now, We've lost something when we read it in 2017 if that doesn't strike us. Because, you know, Vanessa read the passage. I doubt anybody was thinking, holy smokes, that's the most revolutionary passage in the New Testament. You weren't thinking that. The Jews would have thought that. Now, why? And let me start first by saying, why was radical deconstruction needed for them? Okay? Because wasn't Judaism, wasn't that part of God? And didn't he call out that nation? And Abraham, didn't he give him the law to Moses? And wasn't God at work all throughout this nation's history? Yes. Why was radical deconstruction needed? Here's why. The Jews had taken the truth that God had given them in the scripture, in the law, through the prophets, the Psalms, the whole not, all the Old Testament. They had taken that truth and they had built this elaborate religion around it with all these traditions and rules and all these things and you know the sabbath had become this like list of like 800 things that you could and could not do it wasn't anywhere in scripture it was all this religious structure that had built around it now let me give you this analogy if you're in construction you're a home builder and you you have a piece of property and you need to build a house on this piece of property a great house there's already a house there but it's nothing like the house that you need to build. It's dilapidated. It's unsafe. It doesn't meet code. What do you have to do to that house? You got to tear it down. So what's happening in this text is it's demo day for, for Jesus with, with part of the, the tradition that had grown up around the, the religion of Judaism. And so I'm thinking of like Chip Gaines and the Fixer Upper, man. He loves demo day, right? He's like, boom, boom. Now you can't be timid. On demo day, when you're swinging that sledgehammer, you got to go for it. That's why Jesus' words here have such oomph and such punch. We're like, whoa, he's offending these folks. Yes, he was. Yes, he was. With good purpose, with good reason. Now, what does this have to do with us other than like the longest introduction for a sermon in a while? I think the Spirit would wish to do a similar kind of deconstructive work in us through this text. In other words, is it possible that A, some of you in the room think you actually get Christianity, but what you've actually been believing is not Christianity at all? We'll come back to that at the end of the message. And some of you actually do get Christianity, but you've been living according to an old paradigm, a paradigm that looks more like a religion 
more like, more, looks more like this structure of rules. And, and I get to God and I become clean through what I do and these other things rather than actually the purity of what Jesus' message is trying to say. Could it be that there are some things in our lives, whether you're actually a Christian yet or not, that need to be torn down, that need to be deconstructed? That's where we're going. Now, here's how we're going to tackle this passage. You've, you've heard it read, so I'm not going to walk back through all the verses. It's a long passage. Quite frankly, we don't have enough time to go real deep unless you want to be here till two or three, which, by the way, would be great with me. Like, I love doing this, but I'm going to let you guys go to get some lunch. So here's how we're going to break this down. There are two major sections, 1 through 13, 14 through 23. I'm going to summarize the main idea in each. We're going to look at some of the verses, and we're going to, um, well, I'm going to look at the verses, then summarize, and then we'll apply it to our lives. That's the order that we'll go in. All right, so I'm going to summarize what's going on, and then I'm going to pick up the text in verse 6. So let me just give you some background before we get to verse 6. Here's what's happening. Jesus has been teaching up in Galilee, doing uh, miracles up in Galilee with his disciples, and religious leaders from the center of the Jewish religion, Jerusalem, come up north to Galilee to check out this man. All right. Now, we know from what has already been happening earlier, this is not the first time they've checked him out. We know they're already plotting to kill him. So they've actually come to see if they can get some dirt on him. That's actually a pun because the dirt they get on him is that his disciples aren't washing their hands before they eat, right? And so they're dirty. Now, here's the thing with this hand washing. It wasn't about hygiene and it wasn't about manners. It was ritual purity. It was part of the Jewish religion at this time, but it was not in the scripture. That's the key. The only place in the law where it talks about you need to wash your hands were the Levitical priests before they would minister in the temple. They had to wash their hands. For good reason, right? The hand washing was symbolic that they're entering into the presence of a holy God. Hand washing didn't make them pure and holy, but it was symbolic of the difference between sinful man and holy God. Now, over time, hundreds of years, the Jews said, well, if the priests should wash their hands in order to be clean as they approach God, well, then maybe we should start washing our hands in various contexts as well. So they would wash their hands when they go to the market. And, you know, the text that Vanessa read said that, you know, they have all these washing copper pots and all these things, and one of them was going to the market. The reason they would wash their hands after going to the market was because it was in the market that they would rub shoulders with the Gentiles. It was in the market that they would maybe purchase some things that the Gentiles had touched, right? And you, you can't take that, that impurity that's now on your skin and then eat food lest that impurity would actually get inside you and make you impure, make you corrupt. So the tradition was you wash your hands when you come back from the market, you wash your hands before you eat, you wash your copper pots that you had purchased, etc., to make them clean. You got to get the Gentile impurity off of it. Now, this was completely different than God's original intent for the priests to wash their hands. They had shifted it through their traditions. It was intended to be a reminder of God's holiness and their impurity, and they had taken it to, to be reminders to them of the Gentiles' impurity and their purity. Wash that Gentile slime off your hands before you eat, son. That's what's going on here. Here's the progression of thought, the Jewish mindset at this time uncleanliness is out there. It's the unclean people. It's the unchosen ones of God. It's the Gentiles. If you touch it, it gets on you. You must wash the impurity off before you eat so it does not go inside. In other words, it might get on you, but don't let it get in you. 
All this culminates with this question that these religious leaders ask Jesus because they notice his disciples aren't washing their hands. And by the way, Jesus would be responsible for what his disciples do. He's their master. So in verse 5, take a look at it. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition, keyword, of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? Now, we're going to get into verse 6, and you're about to see like the, the sledgehammer swinging. Okay, you ready for this? He said to them, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, and here he's going to quote from, from the book of Isaiah. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. Could there be a more exposing and sort of incriminating response, right? Like Jesus was making some people mad. He had to have been. Here's what he's saying if you boil it down. Jewish leaders, you've missed the whole point. You honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. In other words, the whole point of the law was to point you to closeness with me, to intimacy with me. And you're so worried about all these traditions that you've built up around the law that it's creating this gap. Your heart is not close to me. Your lips are moving but you're not close to me at all. You've missed the entire point. Now, I'm going to summarize verse 9 through 13 because here's what happens next. Jesus keeps swinging the sledgehammer. He goes after a specific tradition as an example. There was a a specific tradition that said if a man declared his possessions korban, all right, which is a Hebrew word that means gift, and it's interpreted here as dedicated to God, if he says, all that I have is dedicated to God, then the tradition that had grown up around, that's not scripture, but a tradition had grown up is, if he dedicates his possessions to God, then he can still use them, but no one else can. So what this meant was, if his aging parents now needed to use his resources to survive, he was traditionally allowed to say, Mom and Dad, I'd I'd love to take you in. You know, I I know you can't work anymore. You're too old. I know there's no social security. I know that, you know, (laughs) probably didn't say that. But I'd love to take you in. But my house has been dedicated to God. And you never know when God might need it. So sorry. That's what was allowed according to this religious structure that had been built around the law. Well, what was the law? Honor your father and your mother. So what Jesus says, you get down to verse 13, and, and, and I'll just you know, read you this verse because it's, it's kind of the, the summary of this, is thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you've handed down, and you do many things such as that. So he's saying, your traditions have not only gotten your heart far from me, but you're actually going straight against the law now, Jewish people. This is not right. This is not right. All right. Now, here's the big idea of part one. Summarize first 13 verses. It goes back to verse six. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Jesus is saying, you've completely missed the point. Purity does not come from your religious activity. So it it doesn't matter all the good things your lips say, what good things your hands do in the washing, what good places your feet might go, how much money you give to me or dedicate to me, your house, all that stuff. If your heart is far from me, it's in vain. And even worse, in vain, it might actually eventually invalidate the word of God in you, which, by the way, 
was their source of life. The Word of God is the way that God was present with them through His Word. The Word of God was the way that His activity was real in their lives as He was doing things by speaking to them through the Word. He's saying, you've stripped yourself of true life in an effort to get clean and do all these religious things. Jesus is, is going after this old, wrong, corrupt structure. Now, we're going to get into 14 to 16, and I'm going to, I'm going to read some of this because he's about to go even further. Let's pick it up in verse 14. As he, after he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile him. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. So here's what Jesus is saying in these verses. Your uncleanliness doesn't come from external sources. You know, you're not going to get cooties from the Gentiles and, and that's what makes you dirty. It's not how it works. The real uncleanliness is in you. Oh boy. It's the Bruce Willis moment here. Like, what? How could they have missed it? Now, this idea was so fundamentally deconstructive that his disciples pull him aside later. And they're like, surely you didn't just mean what you just said. And let's read that part, 17. When he left the crowd and entered the house, disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said to them, are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? Now, here's an interesting next verse. Because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated. The literal translation of the Greek there is latrine. It goes into latrine. All right? So, in other words, what Jesus is saying is that the true man, and this is the true woman too, is what we talked about last week. It's your heart and not the blood vessel, but your inner person, right? The, the, the seat of your mind and your emotions and your, your, your spirituality, that, that's your true self. And when you eat food, that food's not going into your true self, right? It's just getting flushed out of your body. The only thing, what, anything that enters your mouth, the only thing it's touching is your body, not actually your inner person. That's what Jesus is saying here. And then you get this very, you know, interesting little comment Thus he declared all foods clean. This was radical. And by the way, God would confirm this later in a vision he gave to Peter. Remember, you know, get up and eat. Peter says like, surely no, I'm not going to eat that impure food. And, and Jesus says, look, th those dietary laws were there for a reason. That reason has been fulfilled. So therefore all foods are now clean. Remember, uh, Jesus did not come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law and the dietary requirements have been fulfilled. This is what Jesus is declaring according to Mark. Now, let's just finish up the passage and then we'll start getting to the, the heart of it, pun intended. And he was saying, verse 20, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. I'm so glad I've never done any of those things. Ha! And then 23. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Here's the bomb that Jesus has dropped that has now obliterated so much of what they understood about religion before. You ready for it? You don't become unclean 
by touching impure people or by eating impure food, you are unclean because your heart is unclean. That's what all the cleanliness regulations and rules and dietary laws of the law of Moses was trying to point them to. You know, Paul says the law of Moses is like a teacher. It's like a school teacher that's trying to get there and make a point. Jesus is now making the point. It's being fulfilled in him, in a sense. The real uncleanliness is in you. So it doesn't matter what you do to try to get clean. It's in your heart. You can't scrub your own heart. Now, this list that I joked about a minute ago, it's, it's just the examples, right? It's not an exhaustive list of sins. We all know that. And at first, you might look at it and say, well, man, that, this is kind of good news because these are pretty, pretty big deals, right? Thefts, you know, and other than that little candy thing I stole from the store a long time ago, no, nothing there. Uh, murders, I've never murdered anybody. Um, adultery, fornications. I'm doing pretty well on this list, right? And then you get to coveting, hmm, deceit, hmm. Uh, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. We're all here. Now, particularly when you think about the way that Jesus interpreted some things in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember what he said about adultery? (laughs) If anybody just looks lustfully at, at someone else that's not their spouse, they've committed adultery in their heart. Remember what he said about anger? That if you shout out in, in, in anger, sort of, sort of like this, this Hebrew word that was kind of a, a curse, an angry curse at someone, you've murdered them. You see, this is all this deconstruction of how we tend to think about sin, and, and we're starting to realize, oh, it's not just them that needs the deconstruction, it's me. Now, for a group of people, these Jews that had spent all their lives trying to keep themselves away from defilement, they were now going to have to reconsider everything they thought they knew. Like, this is the moment in time, this big reveal. It's like, what? What did you just say? Here's this gigantic assumption they've been making all along. We're clean because we're the chosen people. The non-chosen people are unclean. We're clean because we keep all these rules and regulations and we wash our hands and we don't do all these other things. That's what makes us clean. Jesus is saying, that's all not right. Jesus is saying, everything needs to be deconstructed, needs to be knocked down. This is, I agree, with a quotation, the most revolutionary passage in the New Testament. All right, how do we apply this to our lives? What kind of deconstruction would the Spirit want to do? You know, we, we don't have ritual hand washings. We don't have dietary restrictions. Um, there, there's a lot of the traditions of the Jews that we would look at now. In fact, if you ever go to Israel, man, there's crazy stuff related to Sabbath. Like they can't push elevator buttons. You know, so like all the elevators in the hotel stop at every floor on the Sabbath because a Jew is restricted from pushing an elevator button because that's considered work. I mean, things like this were kind of like, are you kidding me? They've really missed the point. Maybe we're not off the hook. A couple things to get us to some application. First note that Jesus challenged a lot of the assumptions of the Jews, but one thing he did not challenge was their intrinsic understanding that they needed to be cleansed. He never said, you religious people don't need to wash your hands because you're already clean. He didn't say that. What he's saying is, you're misunderstanding the source 
of your uncleanliness and you're misunderstanding the way to get cleansed. But he never said that they didn't need to be cleansed. In fact, he says the opposite. He says, your hearts are impure. They're filthy. And out of those hearts are coming all of these things. So that's where we start. Now, most of us intuitively realize this, that we need to be cleansed. Every human being I've ever met, ever met, has some kind of insecurity in them, some kind of like deep, you know, kind of hidden place where they just don't believe that actually they're lovable or acceptable or beautiful or desired. And, you know, some of you just may not be conscious of it. And some people I meet, they don't project that at all. In fact, they project this ego that actually is a cover-up oftentimes for what's really going down in our heart. Second of all, all of us have guilty consciences as God designed. We've all done things in our lives or we fail to do things that we think we should be or we're not measuring up to this standard that we think God would call us to. And we know we're not clean. We all carry these deep-rooted insecurities and fears. For some of you, it may simply feel like God is distant from me probably because of my disobedience. For others of you, it may not feel like he's necessarily angry or distant, but that he probably spends most of his time being disappointed in you because you could be so much further along. I'll say it this way. Very few people have a deep enough sense of God's delight in them to actually be fully at rest and truly comfortable in their own skin. And I would also add, apart from the reconstruction work, which this passage doesn't talk about, but the rest of Mark will it would be impossible for you to have a deep enough sense of God's delight in you to actually be fully at rest and comfortable in your own skin. And so, because we carry around this sense of uncleanliness, we're always washing our hands. Some of you literally, most of us figuratively. Now, how is it that we're washing our hands? Here's what we have in common with these people in first century Judaism. We try to deal with our uncleanliness in external ways that never get to the heart of our uncleanliness. So that means our problem is the same as theirs. And here's as simple as I can say it. We confuse religious activity for spiritual life. I do this, you do this. Y'all, do you know how easy it is for me to feel like because I can study a passage of Scripture and get up here and communicate it that somehow that makes me special or clean? Do you know how easy my brain can take pride in that? That is wrong. How about you? Because you serve, you know, first hour in the Sunday school or because, you know, you give... Some, some, the money that you give or, or because you read your Bible every day that, that subtly over time you say, I think God's okay with me because I'm doing all these things. How about for those of you that aren't doing these things and you just feel the guilt coming on you right now? Man, I haven't even been back to church in a while. I don't give any money. My, my life's a mess. If, if the pastor only knew like what, what stuff I was actually into or these addictions I'm struggling with or the, the evil desires in my heart, woe is me. We try to cleanse ourselves, all of us, with external things that don't touch the real root issue. Now, I want to make sure y'all know, and I think you do, that church attendance, small group, Bible study, volunteering, family devotions, trying harder not to sin, praying before meals, all good things. But if the motivation behind them is to make yourself acceptable to God or even feel acceptable to God, then it's ritual hand-washing. There is no life in it. 
Don't confuse religious activity for life through the Spirit. The idea, and for many of us, it's often subconscious. Look, I've, I've been a believer for almost 40 years. And I've been a pastor for about 10 of those. And I still get confused. Here's the subconscious idea that we fall trapped to. The better we behave, the cleaner we are. This is some deconstruction that I think God would want to do in our hearts. Now, before you jump to conclusions, I'm not saying that you should not, by God's power, flee from sin. Sin will wreck you. It will wreck you emotionally. It will destroy your relationships. It's like a barrier that makes it feel like God no longer accepts you at all. This is not to say that you should not, through the Spirit's power and through the help of other believers, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This is not to say that you should not try to develop some really good habits of finding life in God's Word and through prayer and in community with other believers. All those things are needed and necessary. But if you think that those are the things that causes God to delight in you, if you think that someday there'll be a version of you that has it all together that God may actually like, you've misheard the gospel. Some things need to get deconstructed. Now, I know I'm speaking in a way to two audiences here. There is an audience here, and, and you may not have thought about it in these terms, but you assume that you're Christians. I'm going to come back to this. But here's the thing. You've never actually had this sixth sense moment where the ground starts to shift under you and you realize that the core of Christianity is not trying to live a good life or going to church or because you're raised in a Christian family. All that stuff's external. All that stuff's good, but it doesn't make you clean. I'll say it this way. If, if you're in this camp, you're trying to relate to God in a way where you're literally honoring him with your lips, even this morning, singing these praise songs, but your heart is far from him. And I don't say this to put more guilt on you. I don't say this condemningly. I actually say this with energy, excitement, and love. Because <laughs> for some of you in this room right now, like, you could have this paradigm shift by hearing the gospel proclaimed through Jesus' words to these first century men. Here's what I think the Spirit would desire to deconstruct for you if you're in that camp where you, you've done Christian things, you've been a part of Christian churches, you've believed Christian ideas, but you've never actually shifted your trust. The ground's never shifted around you to say, I used to try to be clean with all my activities, but now I realize I'm only clean through the grace of Christ. Here's what the Spirit would want to discuss deconstruct through this text the false idea that religious activity and good Christian living might actually make you acceptable to God. It will not, no matter how good you become. Now, this text blows up that idea because it says the sin problem's in your own heart. So therefore, no amount of religious practice or ritual cleansing or external things or, or like getting over your sin or anything of that is going to make you clean on the inside. Now, 
That's one audience. There's another audience, and, and, I, and I believe and trust that this is the larger audience where you, you've had that true conversion in the past, the aha moment where you've shifted your trust from your own efforts to the efforts of Jesus on your behalf. You understand the basis for your acceptance is all grace, that it has nothing to do with your goodness, your religiousness, your personal purity, your disciplined life, your Christian family has nothing to do with anything you do or don't do, only what you put your trust in. You've had that moment, and yet... You're once again relating to God according to an old structure, an old paradigm. And I think there's two sides of this coin to this, and I want to talk briefly to both. Some of you actually are doing well these days, and so there's a subtle sense of pride based on either your theological knowledge or your spiritual performance compared to other people. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm having my times with God at least three or four or five times a week. I'm in this Bible study and, you know, I, I still sin a little bit, but I'm not really like a slave to particular sins. And what can start to happen over time is you start to have this, this very subtle sense of pride. And if you step back, you realize I'm actually basing like God's pr- pleasure in me more on how I'm performing than how Jesus performed on my behalf. That can happen. That especially can happen in a church like ours where we tend to attract people that take God's word seriously and you know, most of you have church backgrounds. All right, there's also this, this group in, in the room and I think this is very large. You have a gnawing sense inside of you that God's not pleased with you. And I referenced this earlier. You, the, the sense that he might love you in some theological sense but he's probably actually pretty disappointed in you because you're not where you should be and your failure and, and all these things. Here's what I believe the Spirit would deconstruct for us. Whatever side of that coin you're on through this text is this. Your spiritual performance has no bearing on your acceptability before God. And by no bearing, I mean no bearing. Is that radical enough for you? I don't mean that God does not desire your holiness because he wants to use you and he wants to give you as much life as you're willing to be open to to receive. But as it relates to your positional acceptance and God's delight in you, it is a gift that you receive from Jesus Christ, not based on works, lest any man should boast. Or, if I could add this, not in the scripture, just to be clear, lest any man or woman should feel a sense of, of a loss of God's acceptance of them. If you sense that, even though you put your trust in Christ, you're actually doing the same thing the religious leaders did in the first century. You're saying, I've got to do some things to be acceptable to God. Now, here's where I want to close. This text focuses only on the deconstruction. It does not yet focus on the reconstruction. That's going to come. It's necessary It's necessary. I actually think this text leaves the audience sort of wanting more. Like you're reading along and you're like, Jesus just like took a sledgehammer to the Jewish religion in the first century and all these assumptions based on this tradition. Surely he's going to build something new in its place, will he not? You're starting to see the trajectory of the New Testament. Good for you. Yes, he is. He's building it from himself, 
right? He, he's the temple that will be torn down and raised up on the third day. You see how all these dots connect together? It's beautiful. It's wonderful. But he does right here leave the audience sort of anticipating the answer. And, and I don't want to leave us exactly right there. Here's how I want to close. This is the second week in a row that, that, that the text has been after our hearts. Have you noticed that? Last week, it was a soft heart. Right? You have a hard heart, you need a soft heart. This week is your heart it can be distant and it can be impure. Are you getting the idea that you need a new heart? I hope you are. Now, Jesus' death and resurrection accomplished that possibility for us. Jesus' death and resurrection on our behalf, substitution for us and being raised back up to life, allows us to receive a new heart. Now, where do we see this? It was prophesied 600 years before Jesus came in the prophet Ezekiel. And I want to read this to you and then just wrap up this message. Here's what Ezekiel said about our need, humankind's need, for a new heart. Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 25. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you. This is God talking to his people. And you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness. Does this sound similar to this text this morning? And from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And so for us today, Here's the offer on the table. Through the finished, completed work of Jesus Christ who came not just to cleanse over but to give us a heart transplant. For anyone in the room this morning that has never received the gift of a new heart, which is the gift of salvation, which is the conversion, it's all these things. Maybe you thought you were because you were in church but you never actually understood like you are this morning. The offer on the table is a new heart. And I'm going to pray in a minute. And if that's where you're at, that's your desire, you can receive that this morning. That, that sounds weird, but it's actually true according to what God's Word is telling us. For the many of you in the room who already have received the new heart, this text, I believe, would cause us to remember this new reality. That the good news that is true for us, is not that we are clean because we obey. We already tried that. It never worked because we had an old heart. But here's the good news, that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we are clean because he obeyed and therefore has taken out the old and put in the new. And we are now a new creation with new hearts. And so we have the opportunity to live according to the new reality. The old has been torn down. The new has been built for all of you who trust in Jesus Christ. That is your reality. So let's start living according to the new. Pray with me. Our Father, through your double-edged sword of your word, we come to see, all of us, that some things we thought were true we're not of you. And the idea that we could ever be clean before you through any amount of religious activity or, or trying to be pure from sin was all false because these hearts that we are born with are wickedly deceitful. 
And so, Father, for anyone in the room that has clarity around this and in this moment would cry out, I need a new heart. I trust in Jesus that he died the death that I deserved and was raised up so that I can be changed and different and I can have a a deep cleansing of a clean heart. I pray that they would cry out for that now and that you would, as I know you will, answer and do that miraculous converting work inside of them, even in this moment. And I thank you for that tremendous gift. And for the many here in this body that have new hearts, that have been redeemed, that have been converted, that have been changed, but they're still constructing these unsafe structures based on how good they're doing or or how how often they're talking to you or not, and they're basing your acceptance of them on that rather than the truth of the gospel, would this morning be a moment where you would tear down that false perception and may they be able to rest. May they be comfortable in their own skin because they are accepted and approved through Jesus Christ, their Lord. And I pray, Father, that as we continue to study your word, you would open up our hearts to understand that it wouldn't just go in our ears and bounce off, that it would do its work of reconstruction in our hearts where we need it. And we thank you for your love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Why don't you stand to your feet as I dismiss you. Here is what is true. For all of you who have put your faith in Jesus Christ, whether today for the first time or whether years ago and have been reminded of that today, what is true is that you are clean. According to the word of God, when God looks at you, he sees the purity of his son, not your sin. And because of that cleanliness, you can go out and become vessels of grace to other people. And my prayer for you this week is that you would live into that calling to the glory of God. Amen. Have a great week.